Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Womenhood and International Relations podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Bonilla. And for today's episode, we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Rachel Winnie. She is the technical director at the Center for Information Resilience. Rachel, thank you so much for joining this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Rachel, one of the goals of the Center for Information Resilience is to provide and verify open source data on different human rights abuses and war crimes in countries such as Ukraine, Myanmar, and Afghanistan. Can you share with us what inspired this project and how did it come about? Of course. So it was really inspired by events in Myanmar after the, the military coup and the state administration councils repression against um, and violence against protesters in Myanmar. And we and the team saw these incredibly brave protesters, young people from Myanmar, putting out footage and videos and images of police brutality and violence by the security forces on social media. And we were looking at all of this data coming through and we were looking at it and thinking, well, this is evidence of potential human rights violations here. And we just thought, you know, is anybody going through this and documenting and verifying it and making sure that it's archived so that it doesn't, if it gets taken down by the social media platforms, it's there for a future legal accountability um, uh, process. And we were incredibly lucky to meet with some very inspirational people from Myanmar who had left the country, who sort of were also in, very interested and shared this goal of actually let's let's capture what's going on, let's document all this evidence online and let's make meaning and sense out of it. And so that was really our first project um, in, in Myanmar, systematically going through everything that was on social media, trying to piece together what had happened in these large scale protests where had, there had been police violence and making sure that that was recorded, reported, archived, and it was shared with the kind of relevant international um, international bodies. And it really just sort of grew from there. So when the uh, Taliban takeover um, in Afghanistan um, in 2021, we saw this real repression of the um, media environment there. A lot of um, international organizations and media were forced to, to flee. So there really wasn't visibility of what was going on the ground. On, on the ground. And again, we said, well, actually, if people you know, are not able to get out there, can we look at alternative sources? Can we see what people are saying on social media? Can we see what's available on sort of satellite images and able to kind of document um, what was going on? And it, and it spread again. And obviously, Ukraine, uh, we started before the full scale Russian invasion, documenting the military buildup um, outside Ukraine. And that, you know, spiraled and led on because we set up a mapping product for that that was already in place at the time of their the full-scale invasion so it really kind of grew from that but very much inspired by the bravery of people on the ground who were documenting what was going on and taking that on social media and trying to make that meaningful oh you see the full circle like how we started with Myanmar and then how different um, conflict crises around the world kept on you know needing this type of project or this type of resource of open source data and you know just to have like a clarification for those listeners out there that may be thinking but what is the difference between open source data and international news and why we should pay attention to these mapping projects rather than what 
news international news media are sharing about a specific conflict yes and i think they're really two very complementary approaches so i think that traditional media approach has very much been based on reporters being out there on the ground documenting what they're seeing trying to speak to to people in conflict concept um contexts or affected by um, issues and what kind of open source investigators and, and open source projects um, ourselves, it's more of a remote monitoring technique and it's looking kind of at this at scale because obviously there's only so many locations that you can go to or people you could speak to during a field mission, for example. Whereas if you're looking at the whole volume of what people in a country are putting on Facebook on Twitter, on Telegram, on TikTok, on Instagram, on this whole range of social media platforms um, that we that we have, you've got access to that, that much wider kind of pool of um, pool of information. And I think the other thing that's sort of different about that open source approach is when reporters and, and news agents are trying to kind of verify their reporting, they'll speak to multiple sources, right, to see if they can triangulate what's coming out. And we do that to an extent, but we also use different techniques as well. So, for example, if you see a video that's been taken and posted on Facebook and someone says this is a video of a Russian bomb hitting a school in Ukraine, our investigators are able to look at that video and they're able to look at satellite imagery. They're able to go on um, applications like Google Earth and they'll match landmarks in the photo with landmarks on the satellite imagery to be able to say with a very high degree of certainty this video was taken at in this location they're able to do techniques like look at shadows and shadow analysis to say yes this video was taken at this at this time and they'll be able to look at the weaponry that was used if there's munition shells if there's craters be able to trace the trajectory of those weapons they look at the classification of the weapons, be able to say, yes, this was a Russian shell, this was the firing trajectory, and then be able to map that, looking at what we can see on satellite imagery to say, yes, there's a Russian firing position. So they're two kind of very complementary um, approaches. And I think we can see a lot of international media now starting to have open source teams and visual investigations really trying to pull this all together. Yeah, and I think that there's a need for that, particularly now in this post-truth era, because the international news media, traditional news media, have been strained by these cold fake news and also by these editorial lines that or audiences are seeing more and more, you know, like certain newspapers that are leaning towards liberalism or towards um, conservatism, etc. And they may frame stories in a way that feeds the elites in power or the elites that pay for the newspaper or the TV channel, etc. And, you know, having this uh, other side of alternative um, mapping projects and open source data platforms provide not only the room for breathing <laughs> and, you know, seeing from the ground and reports from people that are leaving that per perhaps every day, um, but also, you know, uh, it could be a resource for international news journalists that may be, um, you know, needing this type of information. Um, I have seen that in your website, you have made some media collaborations with other international um, news outlets. Could you share how was the process to, you know, make this connection happen? 
Absolutely. And I think it's such an important point you made sort of earlier in your comments there around kind of the lack of trust that people now have in the news and what they read online. And I think one of the powerful things about open source when it's done well is its transparency that you're saying, look, here's my data. This is the anal analysis I did. This is the conclusion. And you can go do that yourself and see if you come to the same place or see if you come with a different outcome and come back to us. So it's very kind of processes designed to be transparent in that way to sort of build trust. But yeah, no, we've been incredibly fortunate to work with some fantastic um, international media organizations with the BBC in, in Myanmar, in CNN, um, in Ukraine, France 24 and Afghanistan. And so, yeah, that's really been a kind of very much a collaborative um, approach. Sometimes that's journalists reaching out to us, having seen what's on our on our website, the reports that we put out saying, hey, I'm working on a story on X. Do you think that you've got some data that can be brought into um, to support that? Or sometimes we think we have a fantastic story and we'll go pitch that to media contacts and say, hey, we really think you should be reporting on this because this is such a significant event that we feel it should, you know, be front page um um be front page news so it's really a kind of very um collaborative um process and i think one of the things that we're able to do particularly with these kind of larger projects is we're able to provide that kind of trend analysis and that very kind of large scale data whereas when we work with the international news media they'll provide the kind of the human stories and the face to that so it's a really um complementary approach and I think the other thing that we're really trying to do at the moment is work more with kind of national and local media in the countries in which we're working because they often do fantastic work really at the front lines of reporting um there there on the ground and so each of our projects has a capacity building element which looks at working with those organizations to be able to say well how could we support you know, with um, online investigations, with digital security, with uh, verification techniques, because we really see them as being very much at the kind of the forefront of all of this work. Well, that's very important, the capacity building element and the digital security, and now more than ever, because there's so many hacking and a lot of, um, you know, threats, digital and online, as well as live. So we will address them in a bit, but I want to, you know, go deeper into the projects that you already have in your platform. One of them is Myanmar Witness, which features um, how after the 2021 military coup, digital battlegrounds were formed targeting and harassing female activists and citizens expressing their political view, views. What are some key findings from this case study? Yeah, oh, thank you for raising this. It's actually one of my uh, I guess favorite reports that we did because I felt it was such an important you know, issue that was underreported. So what we found is that since the military coup at the beginning of February, 2021, women in and from Myanmar were really using social media very powerfully as a means of expressing their political views. But in doing so, they were facing growing levels of online abuse and harassment. So we did a quantitative analysis. We looked at 1.6 million Telegram posts. Telegram is a social media platform that's quite widely used in Myanmar. And we found that that online abuse of, of Myanmar women was five times more prevalent at the end of 2022 than it was 
following the coup and that overall kind of the, the prevalence, the level of abusive toasts was 500 times higher than international baselines for abuse prevalence on social uh, media. And that we were focusing particularly on politically motivated abuse, so abuse that was um, um, targeted at women because of their political views. But really that took place on, uh, as part of a much wider online environment of privacy violations of sexist misogynistic language targeting women and girls. And we found really one of the main areas of abuse was doxing, which is the publication of private information like address or work details name family members online and we found some evidence that that was linked to offline violence and so physical violence and arrests that were targeting women and that was particularly women who were speaking out as part of the pro-democracy movement and were opposing the state administration council which is the kind of military council that's currently ruling Myanmar so we saw evidence of coordination among that you know, those online abuses and Myanmar security forces. And I think one of the things that we saw, and it's quite distinct from the way that men were being treated online, was this use of very sexualized language to shame and to humiliate women in an attempt to um, silence them. We saw, a, you know, it varied, but a tendency for men to be more attacked for their ideas and for women to be attacked for their personal um, integrity. Yeah, and then we looked and we spoke actually in this for this, we complemented the online analysis with interviews with survivors of that abuse because we really wanted to make sure that there was survivor voice in that study. So we just found a whole range of really severe impacts on women on that. So it's having a silencing effect, it's causing women to retreat from public life. You know, survivors are reporting attacks on their person, on their dignity. They were getting rape threats, death threats, you know, violence. They were starting to censor themselves, you know, living in fear. Women had been forced to move house and so on. So it was a really sort of severe um, impact coming out of that. And we really wanted to emphasize that because sometimes there's this false distinction made, right, between what happens online and offline. And actually, we all know from the reality of our lives that those two things intersect and what happens to you online has really you know severe offline impacts um as well so that was kind of the key findings from that um study and as a result of it we were able to get facebook and telegram to take down a number of the channels and the posts that were were featuring um that abuse well, this is a very sensitive subject and one that may resonate with several of our listeners because um, we have an audience that is from different parts of the world and mostly female researchers and advocates in the international relations and feminist organizations. And one of the key aspects um, that some of them share is this online harassment because of their political views and because of their feminist stance that, you know, is a controversial yeah. topic in several parts of the world but um you know listening to how um how complex the scenario became for women in Myanmar after this military coup um how female activists have to deal not only with the doxing but also with online and physical and uh, live threats um to their security to their um identity or to you know, their survival or their family members. Um, it's uh, very um, disheartening to hear. Um, 
what's been the results of this investigation in terms of have the launch of this project help these female activists beyond the Facebook and Telegram that you said um, prior? Or have they felt more free because they have added their information to the open source data and now it's like they feel more heard? Like what's been the response to the Myanmar Witness Project? <laughs> I mean, I think with this study, and I mean, I think this is you know, part of a very long and complicated process, right, which is how we make our online spaces safe for everyone and particularly safe for women and people from minorities who overwhelmingly experience um, experience abuse. I mean, I think for us, with that piece, we were really lucky to be able to do a collaboration with the BBC. And we did, they did a primetime documentary, mini documentary on the research, but also speaking to female activists um, in Myanmar, which went out on the BBC World Service. It went on BBC Newsnight, which is a primetime um, news programme here in the in the UK. So it was really bringing this issue to an audience that might not have been aware of it. And we were very pleased as well to work uh, with the UN Special Rapporteur for the Situation in Human Rights in Myanmar, who with a number of the other UN Special Rapporteurs released a statement on this issue, drawing on some of that um, some of that research but I mean I think that research is really the beginning of a wider conversation and we're doing similar studies at the moment in Afghanistan we hope to publish that soon and a couple of other country contexts to really kind of pull together this evidence base along with the other fantastic organizations who are doing work in this space to be able to demonstrate that this is a you know this is the issue and you know and then I think it's but you know in terms of the kind of fundamentally addressing that and trying to make it safe for women, that's going to be a huge effort that's going to require action from the social media platforms in terms of moderation, in terms of how they design those platforms so as not to reward hateful um, content, the regulators, you know, civil society and those organisations who are providing support to people who are experiencing abuse and, and harassment and and so on. So I think very much we see ourselves as a, you know, a clog cog in that much bigger effort that's trying to get people to really focus this on a really important, as a really important issue that does a lot of real world harm and then really have a dialogue that is as far as possible, like led by survivors, right, who have been through this process and know what it's like, you know, and have a sense of what is actually going to be effective in terms of solutions to try and to try and resolve it. Yeah, and I think the center is still a very young organization and you are right now leading these projects um, in a way showcasing the potential of, you know, change that it could lead. Um, so it's uh, very interesting that you have been focusing not only on Myanmar, but also in Afghanistan, which after the Taliban takeover has been a very um, difficult um, time and difficult process. You have documented in the Afghan Witness um, Project the, um, and you have been collecting sensitive information on, severe, on several violent crimes, including executions, flogging, explosions, and the display of bodies of alleged kidnappers, insurgents, and thieves. Based on your research, what is an overview? Can you share with us an overview of what's occurring in Afghanistan? 
Sure. And I mean, it's a very kind of complicated context. So I'm probably not going to do full justice to that yeah. question <laughs> in the time we have available. I mean, I think particularly for the listeners of this podcast, you've got to headline that with the situation for for women in Afghanistan, which is, you know, truly, truly dire at this point in time, seeing really that systematic deprivation, right, of basic human rights of women to girls, access to education, to the workplace, to justice, you know, their requirement to have a male chaperone uh, wherever you go, which, you know, being able to access healthcare and so on, really very, very restricted. But I think what we've seen alongside that in Afghanistan is really powerful expressions of women's agency as well, whether that's women's protest movements, which started out you know, on the ground, women incredibly bravely uh, taking to the streets. And as the Taliban really repressed, arrested women's activists, really um, cut down on those protesters. We've seen women finding creative ways of protesting, right? Whether that's, you know, doing indoor protests, you know, faces shield filmed from inside um, the houses, taking to social media as one of the means in which they can try, you know, to find expression and and again that's kind of one of the reasons why we've been doing this follow-up report looking at women's um you know ability to advocate afghan women's ability to advocate in the online space and you know some of the challenges they face because it's one of the few spaces that is left for you know for afghan women who do have that access to technology to be able to do it and then, as you know, you, you've touched on there in your question, we've seen the violence committed by the Taliban, the summary executions, and we did a major investigation, which we released at the end of the last year, looking at executions um, in Panjshir, which was one of the centres of armed resistance to the Taliban, public punishments, and this use of the word, you know, kidnappers and insurgents and thieves, which is often used as a terminology to kind of um, cover over the... Um, disappearance of former government or military personnel and their and their targeting as well as ISKP so that's the Islamic State Khorasan province so the branch of the Islamic State that is um active in Afghanistan um and and the region and it's one of the kind of the major um causes of terrorist violence in in Afghanistan today and then I think sitting kind of alongside that is you've seen you know the Taliban which, you know, back when it ruled before really kind of felt like it had come, you know, wasn't adapted to for rule in the 21st century, right? And actually we're seeing them much more um, internet savvy, much more sophisticated. So really moving to control the information space and that's both, you know, censorship of domestic um, media, but they're also very active online, have quite a sophisticated online presence, networks of accounts that are spreading pro-Taliban propaganda online. We've even seen so-called fact-checking accounts, which are pro-Taliban accounts used to dismiss reports of human rights abuses as well. So really that media space and space for freedom of expression in um, in Afghanistan has shrunk so dramatically since the Taliban's takeover. You see the the transition. I I really um appreciate you sharing you know the difference between the Taliban in the nineteen nineties and the Taliban today because you see the transformation in the way that they exercise control over their population and over the different realms that the population may have access to. And I think one of the inevitable questions is how have you 
Afghans that have contributed to the open source data of your center um, safely done so without any repercussions or, you know, like if possible, I think that, you know, that's a question. How How is the contributing of or, cert or sending these um, human rights violations information or photos or videos um, being done in a safe way that it doesn't harm them by these uh, online threats of the Taliban surveillance? Yeah, I mean, it's such an important question. So for us, we have a secure form on our website where people can go on, they can upload content anonymously, that's archived, it's preserved in our database, which is held on a secure, um, secure server, and then people can wipe that data from their phone so that if they did get apprehended, they're not going to have that on their devices with kind of confidence that it is being you know, held somewhere and it will be investigated. And if it's possible to verify it, we will using open source methods, we will do that. We also work with a number of Afghan organizations largely operating now in, in exile because exactly of those security concerns, you know, providing them support with digital security and verification and archiving, you know, to support them in their missions to document what's happening in Afghanistan. But generally we're really careful because as you, you know, as you expressed, if people have access to footage that might show Taliban forces committing a human rights violation, that's going to put them at risk. So our approach has always been, if you have content that you think is relevant, that you filmed, that got sent to you, here is a safe place that you could upload it and it will be preserved and you can delete it. But we really do not actively encourage people to film or to document or to put out calls for information on ongoing incidents precisely because we don't want, you know, we're not there on the ground. We can't assess those risks for people and we don't want to encourage people to be going out and filming something or documenting something that's going to put them in danger. In terms of the online live map, Eyes on Russia, it began in January 2022 um, to collect and verify media information related to Russia's war in Ukraine, but it was before the Ukraine invasion, invasion happened. Um, so you started seeing the movements, the military movements and the different um, changes in narratives and discourses within the Putin's administration and um, Zelensky's administration. Um, do you foresee that a potential Ukraine-Russia conflict would have sparked only a month after? Oh, it's the million dollar question, isn't it? I mean, I think it was very clear from the work that our researchers were doing, documenting the kind of the buildup of, of troops, the movement of vehicles, that something was going on. But I think it's been so difficult with the kind of history of, of Putin and others to be able to understand is this you know military maneuvers designed to extort pressure to create the impression that there might be an invasion in order to you know use that as diplomatic leverage or you know or was this a sign that the full-scale invasion was going to to happen so I think our stance at you know that point was very much trying to point out to people that this is very serious this is a very significant amount of military build up uh you know for you know for a you know military exercise um and that you know this should be taken very you know very very seriously um indeed but it's always i think incredibly difficult to predict you know exactly where and when it was you know it was going to it was going to happen 
And I think, you know, you picked up as well on that point around the kind of narratives. And I think one of the most kind of, you know, serious narratives we've seen coming out of Russia is, you know, this sort of the Nazification of Ukraine, right? Claiming that, you know, Ukraine is governed by Nazis and that Russia is coming to, you know, to rescue um, from that. And you could start to see those kind of narratives, those dehumanizing narratives around, you know, Ukraine in the, in the run-up to the invasion as well. And again, looking at those kind of disinformation narratives is one of those warning signs in terms of, you know, conflict or an escalation of conflict. This conflict um, has become very widely known and studied by many scholars, journalists, and foreign policy experts. Um, and it also have um, created such an international relations, um, you know, uh, crisis in a way, in a very international crisis in terms of the United Nations job <laughs> to um, create peace or long lasting peace being that Russia is part of the UN Security Council and you know all the international condemnation to the Ukraine invasion and the Ukraine conflict overall um, but one of the things that we are seeing as well with this conflict more so than ever is the rise of misinformation and disinformation um, including out of nuclear threats which is um, another area that we have not addressed um in eyes of on russia um project mapping project what are the key findings that you have found so far in the year that you were researching the conflict yeah and i mean i think that information space is one of the areas that we've really looked at as part of that um as part of the conflict in terms of you know if you understand what's going on you need to be documenting on the ground and one of the things that we've been documenting is the sort of systematic destruction of civilian infrastructure be that educational uh, facilities be that health uh, facilities but also kind of cultural facilities as well within ukraine and i think that whole links into this agenda of dehumanization and destroying ukraine's history and culture as part of you know this agenda of kind of wiping out an independent nation and we've seen that very clearly through this um through this campaign and then yeah i mean there's disinformation in all conflict environments right and i think it's been so prominent in ukraine partly because of the actors involved because russia obviously has this very sophisticated influence op operations architecture that it's um deployed um in ukraine and you've seen how they've exploited um, grievances or polarization in the West and really tried to divide, you know, divide Western societies and undermine support um, for the Ukrainian uh, conflict. And we did a piece of work looking at looking at that, looking at issues of conflict fatigue and how you know Russia's tried to exploit that in Ukrainian and in its narratives around Ukraine and found really a very high level of resilience actually among Western audiences and continued support for Ukraine despite you know the the consequences of of, of that clearly and most obviously and most significantly for the Ukrainian people but you know people bearing higher energy prices and the other you know the other fallouts from there um the the conflict as well 
One of the things that I've seen through the portfolio of projects that you have showcased so far is that there's a line between these conflicts of how information is being handled, um, either by non-state or state actors and by civilian um, as well, civilian actors as well. Um, Right now, we see misinformation, we see disinformation campaigns affecting the route or the course of conflicts in these um, conflict scenarios that we have featured so far, but also we can um, see it in other ones if we start studying within our own region. Um, what is the point of creating these many um, information warfare or information battlegrounds? I mean, I think we're reaching a point where information and access to, you know, credible, you know, verified and varied information, right, from different viewpoints on a problem is more important than ever if we're going to make informed decisions around how we respond to crises, how we respond to conflict or how we respond to domestic issues within our own societies. And yet that flow of information is being and trusted information is being consistently undermined through you know, both the, I guess, the actions of kind of harmful actors, those who spread misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, all the different types of kind of information disorder that we have for <laughs> either, you know, political purposes or for profit. Yeah. You know, or also people just genuinely believing, you know, some of these narratives and and spreading that onto their networks, not from, you know, malicious um a malicious intent but for a whole variety of of reasons so I think you know I think information is is more important than than ever if we're to be empowered you know citizens and for democracies to you know to function but it's absolutely such a challenging environment at the moment one of the things that you share in your website is that disinformation and misinformation are clear threats to democracy and can you expand on that, like as to why it is so? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things and maybe just touching on what the kind of points I was just making in that access to information is so essential to make informed decisions. And if, you know, false or misleading information drowns out, you know, accurate information or erodes trust, as you were referring to, so that you know, people aren't trusting any of the information that gets through that ability to make those decisions is fundamentally undermined. But I think also one of the tactics that um, you see by influence actors is kind of emotional manipulation and polarization, right? Seeing divides or wedges within society and trying to exploit those, you know, and to divide citizens of, you know, what they see to be their adversaries. Um, and that just makes it even more difficult, right, to find consensus and to build collaborative, you know, solutions. And it reinforces these sort of polarized political um, environments, which are not conducive to, you know, the, you know, the good functioning of um, uh, democratic systems. And then I think if you'll forgive me two more points on this one, I think, you know, we saw this in Myanmar, right, is that we have disinformation that targets individuals, and particularly women and people from ethnic minorities who suffer this disproportionately. And then they are being, you know, frozen or discouraged or their ability to participate in public life and politics um, 
is is really reduced and undermined right and that is bad for democracy if you don't have women participating you don't have you know people from diverse communities participating but then i think on the flip side what we've seen from governments and particularly authoritarian governments is using kind of countering disinformation in quote marks as a means to cut down on free speech so for example we've seen this in Myanmar where there's a section 38c um, of the law that you know makes it a crime punishable by up to three years in prison i think it might even be longer now to spread fake news and that's being used to crack down on the pro-democracy movement as well right so we're seeing both disinformation as a threat to democracy and responses to to disinformation also in some cases threatening democracy as well you know if i have not watched the social dilemma the documentary that was released on netflix i would not have seen this value that you are offering in the Center for Information Resilience, because that documentary kind of opened my eyes on, on the post-truth era and how, you know, the web searchers like Google or Facebook or whatever top share search website um, tend to cater information to certain audiences. And then some other articles, you cannot find them or other videos, you cannot find them because of the region that you're in or the um, guidelines or the state regulations, etc. So basically information is becoming less free in uh, the internet or this perception that you can find anything. And then you know, in political scenarios or election time, <laughs> um, there's uh, probably some propaganda that is being taught to you in your specific state that may, you know, favor some candidates over others, and you may not see the full picture. And um, one of the things that you advocate in the center, and I didn't know about this term, and I would love for you to share with us a bit more, is to advocate for information resilience. And um, can you share with us what is information resilience and what are the first steps that our audiences can take to start learning about, you know, this flow of information and how to move through all these misinformation, disinformation campaigns? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, yeah, it's a super interesting question. I mean, information resilience is, is such a large concept, right? And it goes right from that very sort of macro scale of how do we set up our social media infrastructure, our regulatory um, environment, you know, the freedom, you know, protections we have in society and freedom of speech in order to be able to kind of foster, you know, and strengthen and protect, protect that flow of diverse, credible information, you know, right down to the individual level. And I think that's what you were touching on in that last part of your question around, you know, citizens who are very media literate, right, very critical in consumption of news and social media cross-referencing information you know questioning or checking sources you know and I think another aspect of that is being just very careful and considerate in what we post and, and how we interact with others online checking that something is true before we share it we're disagreeing with people trying to do so as far as we can respectfully in a way that tries to you know create respectful discourse online following and supporting people who share good quality you know information and we're incredibly lucky in the open source community that um you know, well particularly on twitter until recent changes to that platform has made it slightly less functional there was a whole host of open source analysts who would be sharing information that they verified from people just you know in their bedrooms going through social media looking at footage coming out of ukraine verifying content and 
and so on. So there's loads of people online, I think, doing fantastic, um, fantastic work. You know, and just not giving airtime, I guess, to, you know, actors who are in bad faith and, and are sharing false content or abusing others, sharing disinformation online. What they want is controversy, right? And people talking about them. So I think there's always this balance you have to strike between calling out bad behaviours without, without amplifying them. Rachel, we are reaching the end of this interview and I have three last questions for you. The first one has to do with um, some of our listeners out there that may be interested in uh, um, sharing their photos or videos, their information on human rights abuses, um, but may be afraid to do so because of possible backlash or, you know, this fear of what could happen afterwards. Um, what advice would you give to them? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I think A, be very careful about what you post on online because, you know, that could be found by any type of actors. I would think would just do your research and see which organisations, good quality human rights organisations are working and documenting in the areas that uh, that you're in. I mean, if anybody's in, in Myanmar, Afghanistan, they can look at our website, www.info-reds.org, and find the links to the projects where we have upload, upload forms, but we obviously don't have capability to look, you know, at, at human rights, um, human rights globally. So I'd really encourage you know, people to just look and see which organizations, and often there's fantastic national organizations are, are doing this type of work and who might be able to um, assist. As for female activists or researchers or entrepreneurs that could be interested in open source data projects such as yours, but may be hesitant to follow them because, you know, uh, international news or international media is more prevalent uh, or is considered to be more credible than type of mapping projects. What advice would you share if they may be hesitant to explore the type of work that you do? I mean, I think the thing with the type of the work that we do is we try and be totally transparent about it. So you can go on our website and you can read our methodologies and you can read our reports and see, okay, this is the data that they're working with. This is the analysis that um, that they're doing. I mean, we think that that's very credible and we've had that reinforced by, you know, our work's been cited by multiple international media organizations. It's been used by the UN in human rights reports and UN special rapporteurs reports, but really, you know, go on and judge us and judge us for ourselves and see which other open source organizations are doing uh, kind of work in your area, because there's such a whole realm of information out there as well that, you know, if you're trying to understand a complex conflict or conflict or do research into a difficult topic then absolutely look at the international news media they do some fantastic sources but also think about actually what are some of the other sources that um, are available out there where are some of the data gaps in um, report international reporting or biases where it might be best to look for alternative um, information and, and come check us out and I think that's a very strong point because I, I do think 
uh, coming as a journalist um, from international news media that this is a complementary to the job that we do as well. So it's not like, you know, oh, just only focus on open source data, forget about international news, they're complementary. And as you have said all along, also there's a human element or the human stories that, you know, newspapers or TV channels or documentaries share that perhaps in open source data projects uh, are other types of um information that are connected but they may be missing that type of um human side um so it's about you know uh reducing the gaps the data gaps and as you said and understanding the biases that come from international news media that perhaps in open source data there are very limited the biases because it's just what they are you know like the analysis on what's being sent um so in a way i find that um is very, very <laughs> useful. Um, so anyway, I want to say thank you so much, um, Rachel. What are some ways that we can support your work at the Center for Information Resilience? If people want to donate, if people want to follow or contribute to your work, what are some ways that they can do that? Absolutely. So you can follow us um, on, on Twitter. If you search for the Center for Information Resilience, uh, we will uh, pop up with Send for InfoRes or on our website, which is www.info-res.org. You know, there, there's contact us buttons there if you want to get in touch, if there's a, a project that you're interested in and you think we might have some useful data um, for, or you can just follow our, follow our work and keep up with what we're doing. We'd, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much, Rachel, for your time and for this interview. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's it for today's episode. I invite you to check all recommended links down below in the description box of this episode and invite you to share any comments, any feedback on our different social media channels. Our podcast is available on Instagram, on LinkedIn and Twitter at womenhood underscore IR. Thank you so much for tuning in and talk to you soon.